So our passage this morning begins with the vision of a great and terrible dragon. Picking up in verse 3, it says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So alongside the heavenly woman, whom we considered last week, a great red dragon appeared in the sky. It was said to have seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems, or crowns, symbols of power and authority. And evidently so, because the great red dragon swept away a third of the stars of heaven with its tail and cast them down to earth. It then stood before the heavenly woman, ready to devour her child as soon as she gave birth. And as noted, the details that the Apostle John gives us about the dragon's appearance are not incidental. In fact, dragons and monsters often symbolize evil empires in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah depicts the nation of Egypt that enslaved and oppressed Israel as a dragon named Rahab, whom God hunted down and killed. Isaiah chapter 51 verses 9 through 10 read, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. He then asks, Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? The psalmist Asaph does something similar. This time he names the empire of Egypt Leviathan. Psalm chapter 74 verses 12 through 14 read, Yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength, a clear reference to the Exodus. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. And of course, the archetype for portraying empires as beasts is the prophet Daniel. You know in that famous chapter, Daniel chapter 7, that he saw four great beasts arising from the sea, and each one symbolized a different kingdom. The first was like a lion with the wings of an eagle, and it was Babylon. The second resembled a bear with three ribs between its teeth, and it was Persia. The third was like a leopard with four wings and four heads, and it was Greece. And the last, the fourth beast, was terrible and extremely strong, and it had iron teeth and ten horns, and it was Rome. So thus, in light of such bestial imagery, most scholars understand the great red dragon in Revelation chapter 12, with its heads and horns and crowns, to be a symbol for the empire of Rome. And if we consider the literal events that stand behind this apocalyptic vision, it becomes clear. 
The dragon is King Herod, who was a puppet king of the Roman Empire, who was placed up in Jerusalem to watch over, or in Israel to watch over the nation. And we know Herod, of course, persecuted the boy Jesus, slaughtered all the male children in Bethlehem in attempt to devour Jesus, just like the dragon of Revelation 12. But if the dragon is Rome, it's also more than Rome. Behind it is still another greater and more powerful force. In verse 9, the identity of the dragon is revealed in full. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, and then John names him, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The great dragon is none other than the devil. And the murderous rulers and the oppressive regimes of the world are merely puppets subject to the puppet master. Through deception and envy, the devil twists and manipulates them to do his bidding. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the physical enemies of the church, but against spiritual forces of wickedness, the immensely powerful demonic agencies that inspire them. It is Satan who wages war against God's people and the nations and the institutions of this world are merely tools through which he wages his war. It seems, however, that the great dragon's attention is directed toward the child. That's where his focus lies, to devour the child before it takes even its first breath. Now, why? Why is the dragon after the child? Well, look at verse, tw- or, uh, verse 5 of chapter 12. It says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, and here's the important part, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And his child was caught up, and her child was caught up to God, and to his throne. So, the child is the dragon's mortal enemy because it was born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. In other words, the child is destined to conquer the dragon and to take his kingdom from him. As the famous words read, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For a child will be born to us, A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. Thus, the great red dragon stands before the woman to destroy her son before he can fulfill his destiny. The dragon, however, was unsuccessful. We are told she gave birth to a son, and then immediately after that, her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's a summary of the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry. He was born, 
He died and rose again, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Indeed, Jesus' last words to his disciples were words of triumphant victory. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But the enthronement of this new king, as Jesus ascends to the throne of David at the right hand of God, the enthronement of the new, this new king precipitates a cosmic battle, a war in heaven. Look at verse 7. It says, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them found in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so the passage depicts, the events that the passage depicts, happens not in history past. This isn't depicting the fall of Satan at some primordial time. This happens immediately after the son, the child, is caught up to the throne of God. It's a reference to Jesus' ascension. So when Jesus ascends into heaven, it precipitates this cosmic battle after his enthronement. The child assumed the throne at the right hand of God, and therefore, it says, there's no longer a place for the dragon and his angels in heaven. Thus, Michael and his angels waged war against the dragon and prevailed against him. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The man Jesus Christ has authority in heaven now, And the dragon has been stripped of his authority and cast down as a defeated foe. Thus, declarations of victory ring throughout the cosmos. Verse 10, there's St. Michael destroying the dragon. The angel Michael destroying the dragon. Verse 10, it reads, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word, excuse me, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the seas, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. So, the Christ has ascended to the throne, the dragon has been thrown down, therefore, now, the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of His Christ have come. The loud voice in heaven proclaims good news of a regime change. The kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ were not But now, they are. For this reason, the voice calls for those in heaven to rejoice. A great victory has been won. The dragon has been thrown down to the earth, and it's time to celebrate. But the news for earth dwellers is not so joyous. Our passage this morning ends with the ominous words, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. 
the dragon's authority, which is the authority to accuse and condemn the brethren, has been stripped from him. He has been thrown down, but he has not yet been done away with. Barred from wreaking havoc in heaven, he turns to the earth with great wrath. Indeed, we are told in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. As we identified last week, the woman is the nation Israel. And then verse 17, the dragon went off to make war with the rest of her children who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So if the woman is Israel, her child is Jesus, then who are her, the rest of her children but the church of God? We are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the true Son of God. So knowing that he has only a short time, that ultimately the lake of fire awaits him, the dragon turns toward the woman who gave birth to the child and the rest of her children to make war against them. And that's where the passage leaves us off this morning. And as we've been diligent to point out, the Advent season, what we are currently celebrating, is about waiting. It's a time when we, the church, like Israel before us, wait patiently and expectantly for God's promised deliverance. Our foe, the great dragon, has been thrown down in the ascension of Jesus, but he is yet to be thrown into the lake of fire on the coming day of judgment. And between those two ultimate defeats, being thrown down and being thrown into the lake of fire, the passage tells us he makes war against us. It's how we can describe our time. He makes war against us. Thus, for some reason, hidden in God's inscrutable will, the God of this age, Satan, has been given more time. He will be defeated, but in the meantime, his great wrath is spent against God's people, is it not? And very often, in fact, more often than not, it would seem, our perspective is a demonic-less perspective. We believe in the spiritual forces of wickedness on paper, but their influence does not figure into our day-to-day experience. Now, maybe that's because we are more modern than we'd like to admit. Maybe it's because we're reacting against the superstition of other Christians. But whatever the reason, it's a mistake. There are three actors on the stage, not two. There's God, humanity, and the devil. We must recognize that there is an immensely powerful and evil spiritual intelligence out there. Do we think that our sin and our iniquity can be explained in terms of human failure alone? As if we're not merely reading the scriptures enough or praying as much as we ought to. What about murderers and sexual predators and abusers? Can their actions be explained solely in terms of lack of opportunity and education? What about the more recent events in Orlando and Las Vegas and El Paso? 
Was the cause behind those massacres simply someone crying out for attention? And what about the black and blood-stained history, or uh, blood-stained catalog of human history? Can Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Rwanda, and 9-11 be understood in entirely geopolitical and economic terms? I think not. Instead, behind those events, from someone's individual sin to the greatest horrors of human history, stands the great red dragon of our passage. He makes war against humanity. He wages war against God's people. Therefore, in many ways, between the dragon being thrown down and him being thrown into the lake of fire, our prayer is the one recorded in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, which reads, And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain, refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? O Lord. And so as our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, devouring as many as he can sink his teeth into, including ourselves sometimes, we pray that Advent prayer. How long, O Lord? How long before you rescue us from the power of sin which ravages our lives? How long before you avenge the church against her persecutors? How long before you crush the head of the dragon? And we cry out to the Lord because our adversary is too strong for us. If we are to be delivered, it must be by the Lord's hand. As Fernando Ortega's great song, Our Great God, says, Lord, we are weak and frail, helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels, hold us in your arms. Our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. And so thus, it is our lot to wait patiently until our sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, rises up to defeat our foe for good. That is the Advent time. That's what we're literally all of our existence, but comes into a focus as we prepare for the first and second arrival of Jesus Christ. And so until then, until the dragon has been crushed, we pray as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. But until that day, God has not left us without a means to wage war against the dragon and his enemy. Without a doubt, the victory is of the Lord. If we are to be delivered, it must be by the Lord's hand. But he's given us a means to fight against the dragon. He's given us a means to fight against evil in this world. And so turn with me once again to verse 11. It reads, And they overcame... They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. They overcame him because the blood of the Lamb and because the word of their testimony. We overcome the dragon in the first place by the blood of the Lamb. 
That is through the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. The accusations and the allegations that the dragon makes against us are silenced. Whereas before he used to accuse the saints day and night before the throne of God. Now, in the ascension of Jesus Christ, he is cast down to the earth. And the Lamb stands in the place that he once occupied. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, intercedes for us and he covers our sin. And because of this, the dragon's accusation against us are empty. They bear no weight because we have been justified. Through the blood of Jesus, and I quote from Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, we stand before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Consider those words, blameless and beyond reproach. Literally, there is not an accusation made against you that can stand. There's not a charge that the devil can lay to your account that will hold because you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your righteousness, our righteousness, is complete in the Lamb. And therefore, with our sin atoned for and covered, the dragon is cast down from heaven. In addition to this, the saints overcome the dragon. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. They overcome the dragon by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their life even when faced with death. In what seems like a contradictory statement, St. John tells us that we overcome by being overcome. By giving up our lives, we triumph over the dragon. In other words, by bravely and courageously allowing the dragon to slay us, we slay him. They overcome by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives even when faced with death. They gave their lives up. And this is how they overcome. As Romanian pastor Yosef San told his communist persecutors, Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. And this is paradoxical. And I want us to feel a bit of that paradox that we overcome by dying, that we, we win by losing. It is very strange. It's very paradoxical. But this strategy is nothing new. In fact, it's the Lord's. Turn with me to Revelation 5. The verses will be on the screen for you. Revelation 5, this is the, this is the scene in heaven. It says, beginning in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, speaking of God the Father, a book written inside, and on the back, sealed, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so John the Revelator weeps Because there was no one worthy to open the book, which is a symbol for the redemption of the world. No one, not in heaven, 
or on earth or under the earth, was fit for such a task. But the passage continues. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So an unknown elder rebukes John and tells him to quit his weeping because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah has overcome. Jesus, the conquering and mighty lion, has done it. He has overcome the dragon and gained the right to claim the world as his own. But when John turns to see a lion, or to see the lion, he sees something else. Look at verse 6 and 7. It says, And I saw between the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, he says, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the, war, into the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So there's John weeping. There's no one worthy. The elder rebukes him and says, no, there is one worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But yet, John turns to see a conquering lion, but instead, he sees something else, a slaughtered lamb. And if you can understand that dramatic reversal, looking for a lion, but then seeing a slaughtered lamb, you can understand the heart of how God conquers the world. Not through sheer force and overwhelming power, but through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Not through coercion, but paradoxically through weakness. The victory that God wins does not take the form that we might expect. So in other words, Jesus overcomes by being overcome. He slays by being slain, and he conquers by being conquered. The victorious lamb, or excuse me, the victorious lion is a defeated lamb. How strange are God's ways. And thus, like the lamb, you and I, the church, we overcome by the word of our testimony. That we do not love our lives even when faced with death. We combat the dragon, the forces of evil, the demonic powers that are very active in the world, not through worldly measures, politics, the sword, and the like, but through the invincible power of patient endurance, endurance and a willingness to suffer on behalf of the Lord. Our power, the power that God has given us as His people, is the power of the slain lamb. That is how we conquer in the world. The whole idea is summed up beautifully in the words of Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. He says, You have kept my word. This is the Lord speaking to the church. He says, You have kept my word and, deny, and not denied my name. That's the power we have of faithfulness to the point of death. And I'd like you to take the early church as an example of this. They conquered the Roman Empire by being conquered. Indeed, Tertullian, he's one of the church's earliest theologians, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed 
of the church. And thus, one innocent martyr after another, the pagans began to take notice. Rome was exposed for the bloodthirsty monster that it was, and the church began to win favor. And each drop of blood was a witness to the truth of their message. That Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. That there was a hope after this life, and they conquered. Eusebius, he's the church's first historian, he chronicles a scene shortly after the Roman Empire converted to Christianity. The emperor Constantine, he invited the church's leadership to celebrate with him. He had been an emperor for 20 years, and typically there was a giant celebration. And so he invited the bishops, the leaders of the church. And in his passage, Eusebius marveled that the once hounded and persecuted bishops... These men who had been relentlessly persecuted by the Roman Empire could walk fearlessly past the Roman guards in the emperor's palace who were once ordered to kill these men. Eusebius says, One might have thought that a picture of Christ's kingdom was shadowed forth, and a dream rather than a reality. And so whatever our opinion of Christendom may be, of what Constantine was up to, the triumph of those early Christians' faithful witness and patient endurance cannot be denied. And such is the task before us. The dragon has been thrown down, but he is yet to be thrown into the lake of fire. The war is being waged, and we must wage God's holy war, so to speak. And let me say, I don't want to make it out like our situation, in our present day, is anywhere near the situation that the text speaks of. We enjoy great liberty and privilege in our country, even today. Nor do I want to play into the hands of a victimhood mentality. Poor us, they're taking our rights from us, and they've taken our country from us already. The passage does not encourage fear and resentment, but courage and bravery. We are never victims, but we are only conquerors. We overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So in your workplace, conquer by being conquered. Do not compromise with unrighteousness or make peace with wickedness, but remain faithful to the Lord. And if you are ostracized and mocked because you do not as St. Peter says, join them in the same flood of debauchery, so be it. In your faithful suffering, as you are considered on the outside of your group at work or wherever it may be, in your faithful suffering, you are overcoming. And not all will see your witness, surely, but those who are being saved will. Your patient endurance, your willingness, and your conviction to stand on the outside, to remain faithful to Jesus, it will be seen, and it will be more effective than a thousand sermons. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And in the same way, I encourage you, resolve to conquer among your family and friends. Since becoming a Christian, they treat you differently, and you find yourself not quite fitting in. Treat it as an opportunity to overcome like the lamb that was slain. Keep turning the other cheek. Keep going the extra mile. 
keep blessing rather than cursing. And it may take time, certainly with your family, but your suffering love will soon melt away the hardness of their hearts. In your example, they will see a picture of Jesus himself who suffered on our behalf. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so too, as the American beast's fangs grow longer and its claws sharper, the people of the Lamb, you and I, must be resolved to conquer through weakness. As many throw themselves into the political project with messianic zeal and fervor, let us remember that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. More powerful than a seat in the Supreme Court or a majority in Congress or a president in the Oval Office is our testimony of faithful suffering. That is how we overcome. Just as it's written, Romans chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But the Apostle Paul says, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So, in the Advent season, which is really a, a metaphor for our entire lives, Let us wait with patient endurance because, to quote the very last words of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.